Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm glad that you saw the animals that you saw, the giraffes and the elephants and the hyenas. And by the way, hyena babies are very, very cute. <laughs> but actually, the adults have a lot going for them as well. But of course, the, the one that I know best, the one I've studied for so long, which is now studied by our research team. We're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the beginning of that study in 1960. So it's the longest unbroken study of any wild animal in the world. And so I think this will be the first time that the greeting call of the chimpanzee will echo in this particular part of Africa because chimps don't live here. But if you came to one of the places where they live in the forests, you would hear which, what for me is one of the most evocative sounds of the African forest. <laughs> Which, hello. <laughs> uh, I want to go back just for a second to the beginning. And Sometimes you heard this list of honors read out. Well, how did that happen? Little girl born in England to a family with very little money, couldn't even afford a bicycle, now traveling around the world and, and able to meet more or less anybody. There's open doors. So how did it happen? And it makes me think of a fable that I'm sure many of you know. My mother used to read it to me and my sister when we were little. And it was about the birds coming together to have a competition. Who could fly the highest? And the mighty eagle is sure that he will win. And with these great strong wings, he goes higher and higher. And gradually, the other birds get tired until, in the end, there he is. But he's tired now. He can't go any higher, but it doesn't matter because he's won like he knew. But hiding in the feathers on his back is a little Jenny Wren. And now she flies up, and she flies highest of all. And the reason I love this story is because, to me, it's symbolic. If we think of our life as an effort to always go just a little bit higher, to reach a goal that's just a little bit above our grasp, how high can any of us go without our eagle? And I look back over my life, and I think of all the amazing people who've been there to support me, to keep me afloat, or keep me aloft. And to me, they're like the feathers on my eagle, big, strong feathers, small feathers, everyone playing its part. And the one that I want to acknowledge now, the person to whom I owe the most, who was the greatest inspiration, who helped me to be what I am today, at least the good parts, not the bad parts, was my extraordinary mother. Right from the beginning, she supported my passion for animals. When I was 18 months, she came into my room one night, and I'd taken a whole handful of earthworms to bed with me. <laughs> and instead of saying, ugh, take them out, don't have those dirty things in your bed, she said, if you leave them here, they'll die. And so together, we gathered them up and took them back to the earth. And then when I was four and a half, oh, the excitement. We lived in London, but we went for a holiday into the country. And I met for the first time cows and pigs and horses. And it, I can still remember it vividly. Four and a half, I remember it, my first vivid memory. And one of my jobs was to help collect the hen's eggs. So in those days, there were no cruel battery farms. The hens pecked around in the farmyard the way hens should. And so they were mostly laying their eggs in these little wooden hen houses, but they also slept at night. And I was 
you know, collecting the egg sort of that size, but where on the hen was the hole big enough for the egg to come out? I couldn't see a hole like that. So I was asking everybody, and obviously nobody answered to my satisfaction. <laughs> so one afternoon, and the, you know, the whole thing remembered, I saw this hen climbing up this little sloping plank into her hen house, and I thought, ah, she's going to lay an egg. So I crawled after her, well, big mistake. Uh, she was squawks of, I suppose, fear, she flew out. So I worked out that would be a frightening place for other hens. I would not see an egg laid if I stayed there. So I went to an empty hen house. And I hid in the straw at the back, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And the family had no idea where I was. They were all searching. It was getting dark. My mother sees this excited little creature rushing towards the house, all covered in the straw. And instead of getting mad at me, how dare you go off without telling us? Don't you know how worried we've been? Don't you dare do that again? Which would have destroyed all the excitement. She saw my shining eyes and sat down to hear this wonderful story of how a hen lays an egg. She helped me by finding the books I wanted to read, books about animals. Dr. Doolittle, remember how he took animals from the circus back to Africa? Yes. And then Tarzan. It was about, I think, 10 or 11 when I discovered the books. There was no TV back then. And, of course, I fell passionately in love with this lord of the jungle. And what does he go and do? He marries that other wimpy Jane. <laughs> and I was really jealous. And I was sure I would have been a better mate for Tarzan myself, which I would have been. So that was when my dream began. I would grow up, I would live with animals in Africa, and I would write books about them. That was the dream. Left school, my friends went to university. We couldn't afford it. No scholarships back then after the war, unless you were good in a foreign language. I didn't even know chimpanzee then. And so, again, it was my mother, do a secretarial course, and then perhaps you can get a job in Africa. So I did that. I got a job in London, a job in Oxford. Then I got a letter from a school friend inviting me to Kenya. Yes, opportunity. Because what my mother had always said to me when everybody else laughed at me and told me that, I couldn't achieve my dream. Well, of course I couldn't achieve my dream. It was World War II raging when I had that dream. And Africa was still the dark continent. We didn't know much about it. We had rumors of poisoned arrows and sinister drum beats at night. And as I've said, we didn't have any money. There were no tourists going back and forth. But perhaps most important of all, I was the wrong sex. I was just a girl, and girls didn't do that sort of thing. But it was only my mother and my entire family, actually. If you really want something and you work hard and you take advantage of opportunity and you never give up, you find a way. That was how I was brought up. So here came the opportunity, the letter from my school friend. Off I went, but it wasn't that easy because there wasn't any money still, so I worked as a waitress and I saved up the wages and the tips and it took a long time, but eventually I had enough for a return fare by boat. So I was 23 when I set off, waved goodbye to my family, my friends, and my country, and I set off on this amazing adventure. And to me, every, life, every day of my life is a sort of adventure, because you never quite know what's going to happen, who you'll meet, uh, what you'll learn. But that adventure, that first one, was really special. I stayed with my friend. I had a job in Nairobi after a bit because I was taught you don't sponge on your friends and after a while you, you leave them. 
preferably while they still want you to stay and not afterwards. Like there's a saying in Africa that if you want somebody to leave, you give them water buck stew. I don't know if that's true, but apparently they'll never come back. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I heard about Lewis Leakey, Richard Leakey's father. Somebody said, Jane, if you care about animals, you should meet Lewis. So I went to meet him at the Natural History Museum. He asked me many, many questions. I think he was impressed that a young girl straight from England with no degree of any sort could answer so many of his questions about animals. And he gave me the opportunity to go to Alderby Gorge with himself, his wife, and one other young English girl. At that time, Alderby was totally unspoiled. No human fossils had been found. It was just a few animal fossils. All the animals were there, the antelopes, the, the zebra. One evening, Gillian and I, who were allowed to walk on the plains, we uh, met a young lion, a young male lion, two years old, little bits of tufty hair of his mane growing, utterly curious. He'd never seen two people like Gillian and me before, and he followed us at least from here to the far back. And it was scary, but it was also very exciting. And I think that was when Lewis Leakey decided this was the person he'd been looking for to go and try and learn about our closest living relatives in the wild, living in the wild. And it took two years to get, or nearly two years, before he could get the money for me to go, because who was going to give money to this young girl going off into the bush with no degree? And finally, a wealthy American businessman gave the money for six months, just six months. He said, we'll see how she does. But then what was then Tanganyika, the British authorities said they would not take responsibility for such a crazy idea. But eventually, Lewis never gave up. And they said, all right, but she must have a companion. So the volunteer who came for the first four of those six months was none other than that same remarkable mother. And she boosted my morale, the greatest thing she did for me, because in those early days, the chimpanzees ran away as soon as they saw me. They'd never seen anything like me before. They'd not seen a white ape, which is what I was. And they would vanish into the undergrowth. And there I was, living my dream life, but I knew if I didn't see something exciting before the first six months ran out, then that would be the end. So she boosted my morale. She would say, but Jane, think what you are learning from my vantage point with binoculars, the kind of things they were eating, the kind of groups they were moving around in the way they bent branches over to make a nest or bed at night. And it was very sad that she left just before the breakthrough observation, which was what everybody knows now, chimpanzees using and making tools to fish for termites. That was what enabled Lewis to get money uh, from National Geographic Society for me to continue the study. And now we look back after nearly 50 years at this study of these extraordinary beings. And I think the most striking thing is just how like us they actually are. The DNA of chimps and humans differs by only just over 1%. You could have a blood transfusion from a chimp if you match the blood group. The immune system so similar they can catch or be infected with all our known contagious diseases. The brain almost identical in its structure, but a bit smaller. And then, of course, what fascinates me, the behavior. Long childhood, five years, approximately, of suckling from the mother and riding about on her back, five years before a new baby is born. This 
long childhood, enabling the young chimpanzee to learn what it needs to know, just like our children learn by observing and imitating. The close bonds formed between family members that can last through a life of up to 70 years. The communication, the non-verbal communication, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another on the back, swaggering, throwing rocks, shaking the fist. Postures and gestures done in the same context as we do them and obviously meaning the same kind of thing. It was a shock to find that chimpanzees whom I'd thought were nicer than people were actually capable of violence and brutality and even a kind of primitive war. But then on the other hand, they're capable of loving behavior, compassion and true altruism. So they like us have a dark side. They like us have a more noble side. There's no question but that chimpanzees make us believe that there is not a sharp line dividing us from the rest of the animal kingdom as used to be thought. It's a very blurry line. We are part of and not separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. So how sad that these ambassadors are vanishing like so many of the other animals with whom we share or should share this planet. They're vanishing from across Africa, down from between one and two million at the turn of last century to no more, maximum 300,000 today, spread over 21 African nations, many in tiny isolated groups, and they have little hope for long-term survival because of inbreeding.